Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. On this podcast, we'll talk about things like purpose, legacy, love, influence, sex, success, wealth, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review if you've enjoyed what you heard, subscribe, and join the other thousands and thousands of changemakers in our community on Facebook, or go to www.mantalks.com for more blog posts, podcasts, and videos from our live event. With me today, I have a special guest who I have personally been wanting to interview for a few years after I read his book, which came out in 2015, and that book is called To Be a Man. This book is really about uncovering masculinity, understanding how men work, how men function, why they think the way that they think, why they act the way that they act, and what drives us, what really drives us. So, you know, whether you are a man searching for deeper levels of purpose, a better relationship, this podcast is definitely going to be for you. Or you're a woman who is trying to understand her partner better, or trying to understand men better, this podcast is still for you. Now, Robert has a really interesting background. He, at the age of 21, was in a PhD program in biochemistry and left that and went on a pretty intense journey over the next few years. And since then, for the past 35, 40 years, so three or four decades, he has predominantly worked uh, as a psychologist, as a therapist, as a counselor, and he he focuses specifically on men's work, women's work, and helping both men and women uncover some of their deeper desires, work through their their shame that's getting in the way of them living the purpose that they're looking for in their life, connecting with their partners at an intimate level. And so we dive into some of these topics. We talk about intimacy. We talk about uh, being able to connect with your partner better, whether it's sexually, whether it's through communication. Uh, Robert shares some very specific tools with with how to deepen that connection with your partner. And he also shares some insight into how to, how to connect with your purpose, how to connect with the meaning that you're searching for in life. And he's got some very, very great insight and wisdom after working with tens of thousands of people. And just on a side note, Robert actually works a lot with therapists and psychologists. So he's kind of like a train the trainer to therapists and psychologists from all over the world. So absolutely incredible man. So Robert, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate you joining our community and I'm looking forward to this, uh, this conversation. Me too. Wonderful. So I'm going to start this as I always do. And I'm really curious about what story you have, but can you share with our audience, our listeners, a story about you, a defining story that has really shaped who you are today? I've had so many defining stories. I mean, this is a long, long list. But one of the key themes has been death. I've, I've been close to death probably nine or ten times, very close. And when I was younger, I would, I would move through a fast, resume, resume my usual self. The last uh, June, I was... Um, had a sudden heart attack, the type that kills you within 10 minutes. I was just slammed by it. Thank God my wife was there. She called an ambulance. It was there in five minutes. 
Otherwise, 10 minutes, I would have been dead. And I came out of that not just relieved, but profoundly grateful to still be here. My work was already well underway. I've been doing it for, you know, 35, 40 years. I had ripened it. It was, just, you know, it was pretty high quality. But what happened after the heart attack, my perspective uh, was deepened, widened, and it didn't go away as the heart attack subsided into the past. I felt immensely softened, far more compassionate, and uh, even more grateful to still be able to do my work, have my relationship with my wife continue, who I'm super close to. And three weeks after the, the heart attack, I had a, a training plan, one week long training for professionals. And I assumed I wouldn't be able to do it. But when the time came, I was able to do it. And I sat down with the group and I said, well, here's what's happened to me. And they're very empathetic. And we talked. And I said, and as usual, uh, usually I've, I've done body work in the groups, a lot of uh, somatic work. I said, this time I have to pass on that because you know, I'm fragile. An hour later, I'm down on the mat doing body work and I'm fine. I'm not being foolish in it, but I feel so invigorated by feeling people's need, my care for them, uh, the flow between us, the spontaneous arising of structure and depth and trauma work, the whole thing that I've been going ever since. I've just finished a women's group yesterday, so I'm kind of feeling a little tired now, well used in a good way. So the defining moments of me, for me often have been to do, I've been right at the very edge, the true edge where that could be it. This is done. And being there a number of times has served me profoundly. Not that I would wish that on others. It came with a lot of suffering too often, but it it shifted me. I also had times in my early life what I would call dying into life. Like when I was 21, I was doing a PhD in enzyme biochemistry, and I was not into it at all. I had a dream after a year of this of, that I died in the dream. I drowned, and I came out of that drowning and went straight to my professor, the dean of the university, and said, I'm quitting. And I did never went back to academia like that. I start traveling. I found my way into my work. So I've had these big moments that have just blasted me open, forced me to go into my conditioning, step into my deeper manhood. So that's just a very tiny taste of it. Mm, that's why, I mean, that's an incredible story. And I think, you know, oftentimes one of the things that you touched on right there was, was the edge. And it would be interesting for us to talk about death a little bit in this podcast, which we might which we might get to later. Maybe that's how we'll sort of end things. But you, you talk a little bit about the edge, and I know that you referred to the edge in your most recent book, To Be a Man. Yeah. And you, you you really talk about how being able to challenge ourselves and expanding our edge and, and, and getting to know our edge, you know, you, you discuss a little bit why it's important. I'm curious if you can unpack that for us and sort of define why it's important for men to to explore their edge. And, and I'm also curious, does it, is there a correlation there with regards to us finding a deep sense of meaning and purpose in our life? Yes. And, and the edge is where we, where we grow the most profoundly and the most deeply. And one sign of it being our edge is that there's a fear in approaching it. There's a trepidation. And, and that, the gift in that is it allows us to access our courage, our deep courage. And I don't, push people toward their edge, I invite them toward it. But every time I do a group, men's group, women's group training, we're working with the edge in each person all the time. The primal edge, the place where their conditioning first took root and approaching it with great respect, no shaming. Because sometimes people freeze when they get close to their edge. They, they, the, the terror takes over. Um, there's a sense of hesitation. There's a lot of resistance. When that's met with compassion and there's some intimacy is cultivated with those states, then the edge can be approached in a different way 
we can start to become intimate with it. So with my edge, I've learned to become very intimate with it, all the layers of it, the edge of the edge. And that's where life, life is most alive. And the edge isn't always scary. Sometimes the edge is just about becoming more vulnerable or telling the truth in a situation where you don't want to tell the truth or admitting that you've hurt someone and, and saying it openly in a way that doesn't allow you any defensiveness. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've always found that the closer I get to my edge, the more that I seem to learn. And it's all almost always this sort of uncomfortable place, you know, that, that's, yeah, yeah. that's usually my indicator. Because oftentimes people will say, well, I don't, you know, the edge seems like a very conceptual thing. How do I know when I'm getting close to my edge? Or how do I explore that part of myself? And, and for me, it's whenever I feel uncomfortable, either in a, you know, in a in a conversation, yeah. or in the idea of approaching a conversation, that's usually where there's a lot of growth. So if you were to if you were to give people some some insight on how, not only how to approach their edge, but how to work with their edge and and sort of uh, yeah. expand yeah. a little bit, well, one, what, one what the, would one you say about that? One of the first steps, Connor, is, is, is sounds so simple, is to turn toward your pain. Where we all have pain, this part comes with life. It's just part of the package. And our typical way of responding to pain, personally and culturally, is to get away from it, medicate it diminish it, rise above it like when we spiritually bypass, get overly sexual, anything that takes us away from it. But once you turn toward your pain, you've taken probably the most, the biggest step you could take in the beginning of your evolution toward true manhood, true beinghood. That's because in, in the pain, is such there's such teachings in there. There's such a sense of, of, of having the very best of you drawn out. So if I'm approaching my pain, it could be physical, emotional, spiritual, mixture of all of them, I'm deliberately moving at many levels toward the painfulness. That could be a pain in my body, a pain in a relationship, a, a extreme discomfort, some shame kicking in. When I move toward my pain, I become more capable of becoming intimate with it. And the more intimate I am with my pain, the less I suffer, the less my pain pains me. I bring it out of my shadow, so to speak. And part of being at one's edge is approaching one's pain, not trying to get away from it in some heroic fashion, you know, skydiving or whatever, but to actually go toward that fearfulness and with great care. Because usually when we approach um, our, pay, our pain, we find a fearfulness. And in that fear is the, our younger versions of ourselves, um, the little boy, the very young little boy, the, the young teen. When we personify our fear that way, we can relate to it even more deeply. Here's, here's little Robert, here's little Connor. Our heart goes out to this little boy. We feel two impulses. One is to love him. The other is to protect him. When that, when what's inside us, the child side feels that, there's an easing. There's a sense of vulnerability no longer being a problem. There's a safety. So the edge isn't just some uh, thing about some great hero wearing armor plunging into the unknown. It's more ordinary than that, and it's deeper than that. It's like to really go to your edge, you have to be vulnerable. You have to have your access to your courage. And we already have these. When I see men come to a men's group and they're frightened to start with, I say, well, there's fear in you, there's excitement, and it takes great courage because you know you're going to be going into the deep end of the pool soon. You're going to shift from surface to depth over and over. And that's that's not necessarily a smooth ride, but there's good company for it. There's a lot of safety here. There's a sense of, of core-level excitement in doing that. And at any age, I've seen men in their late 70s doing it, guys in their early 20s, taking that dive, it brings out the best in us. It brings out the warrior in us. 
the vulnerable warrior too, the one who's capable of true intimacy with a partner. And but this all begins with turning toward your pain, identifying your pain, naming it, and then turning toward it, which means taking your full awareness into it and feeling it without any um, guardedness, having a visceral sense. Here it is, and man, this hurts. Oh my God, this is so uncomfortable to have to say that to her or to admit, look what I did. Oh my God. To cut through that is such a, a profound thing. We don't just do it once and now we've arrived, we played our edge and we're now men. It's more like this is an ongoing process. I mean, when I was facing my death outside, the only thing I knew I had to do was not black out. I knew if I blacked out, I'd be, I'd be gone completely. So I did everything I could to stay conscious till the ambulance came, which made a huge difference. That was my edge, to stay conscious. And it took everything, all my training, everything I had, my love for Diane, my wanting to work more, my sense of not being ready. It took everything. And at the same time, I was being brought to my knees. I was being blasted by something so overpowering. There's no way I could have stopped the dying process. Yeah, it's interesting. And in what you were just describing, I hear you know, a real deep sense of taking ownership over parts of ourselves that we would often turn away from, you know, you talk about turning towards your pain and, and, you know, these situations that you, that you mentioned maybe with our partners or in our work environments where, where we would have a tendency to shut down and ignore, ignore what's actually there. What I hear you saying is really to take ownership over it and either to give it voice or or to really just give it some form of acknowledgement, the, the sort of form of acknowledgement that it's that it's requiring. Well, what's really central in this is to relate to it. It sounds so simple to say, but most of the time we're identified with things in our shadow. We're identified with a child in us. We're identified with our conditioning. And then we act like we can't do things differently. We say, I just something came over me. I couldn't help it. I lost control. We don't take charge of our charge. Charge or excitation are kind of rise spontaneously, but a few seconds later, we have the capacity to take charge of it, to take ownership. And when we do that, we start to relate to these qualities. We relate to the boy in us. We relate to our inner critic. We relate to our inner saboteur, etc. And the far reach of that is intimacy, to become intimate with these aspects. And my path, if I have to sum it up simply, is to be intimate with all that I am, all that is. High and low, dark and light, good and bad, dying and undying, but to choose intimacy. I mean, I've chosen it in my real intimate relationship with my wife, but also to choose it for, with all the qualities that constitute me that make up what we call Robert. And doing that allows me to get so close to the qualities that make me up, I can see them much more clearly than if I remained really detached or distant or meditatively removed from them. I mean close, but not so close I get lost in these states or fused with them, I get close enough to still maintain some degree of focus, clear focus. And that's intimacy, to be super close to another and to have just enough space from them to keep them in focus. And that's part of the deep work is to not fuse with these difficult qualities in us, but to relate to them. Yeah. And that's, you know, you, you just touched on intimacy. And I think that I think a lot of men, not that they struggle, but there is a stigma or a bit of a stereotype that men do struggle with intimacy. And I'm curious to get your perspective on what you see, because you've been working in, in this space for, you know, three to four decades, working with men, working with women. And I'm curious what your perspective is of what normally blocks men from having the intimacy that they desire and crave. Shame, uh, un, unattended mm -hmm. shame, 
shame that they don't recognize as shame. And I think women, there's a lot of shame for women, but men, there's, I think there's even more shame. You know, the shame of falling short of being a man, whatever man means. The shame of not being competent. The shame of having an industrial strength inner critic on our back. The shame of being told by some women who are unskillfully saying to us so many words, oh, be more of a man, you know, show up more. That we can be shamed so often. When I see men that are trapped in shame, they're usually disempowered. They're either um, passive aggressive or they're overly angry. They might be hypersexual. But they're doing, but all these are, are are secondary effects of having turned away from their shame. So going back to turning toward the pain, when we turn toward our shame, say if you and I are, are friends and I've said something that really hurts you, if I let in the fact that you're hurt by what I've said, don't make you wrong for like somehow you're too you're so immature, or whatever. I. I, there's a pain, there's a shame, but staying with the shame, not letting it mutate into aggression or withdrawal or dissociation, there's an action that emerges to say, I'm sorry, but not from my heart, not just a tough guy, I'm sorry, but a really authentic sorry. And then an examination of what was motivated me to do that in the first place with you as a witness and doing it in a way where you and I become closer because I'm being vulnerable, I'm being self-disclosing. And that's, that's an example that's very common. So when I'm with a group of men and we cut through the shame layer, which doesn't usually take very long, then the deep tears come, then the grief comes, then the, then the healing rage comes and the laughter, the joy, the camaraderie of doing really, really deep primal level work in a safe container. And that's why I address, I address shame. When I was younger, and my sister was doing therapy, I didn't have a clue about this. I learned over the decades not to shame people I'm working with. Some teachers think, think the shame can be a motivating tactic. I think it backfires always. It always backfires. If I don't shame a man, he feels safer and safer. I still can challenge him, but it's like I'm challenging him in a way where we're both in it together. I'm doing the heavy lifting maybe in the work, but he's with me. The other men are with me. There's a sense of we're, we're on the same team. There's no one on top. There's no inner critic type of force saying, you're not good enough. You're not doing it right. You should you should be able to cry after all this work. There's none of that. None of that. Hmm. Yeah, really, really interesting. I think it's it's so powerful because the more that, you know, the more that I've been working with men and the more that our organization has, has spread all over North America, I see very consistent issues, whether it's Vancouver or New York or Los Angeles or Toronto, like there's, there just seems to be consistent issues in it and almost inevitably ties back to shame. And I'm, I'm curious because a lot of men struggle, you know, there's, there's some in really interesting facts right now, like 50% of men over the age of 19 or 20 can't identify a best friend and, you know, men are four times more likely to commit suicide. And so there's a lot of these sort of heavier qualities around masculinity right now and a lot of it is being tied back to this sense of shame and, and social isolation and the fact that most men don't really have those close bonds, those close connections with brothers in their life. And I'm, I'm curious as what your perspective is on that. Like what, what's the shame that's generally getting in the way of men having really close connections with one another? Well, it's fear of being shamed by each other, which is part of it being a, a competitive in a very negative sense. And I see that a lot. And I also see the opposite is when men are together in a really deep group and deep group work, there's relief of having brothers and the relief of being able to say things they haven't told anyone. Some of the shameful things that have happened or, uh, for example, one thing I will do with men who have uh, heavy porn addictions, I get a lot of them is say, I want, tell me your, tell me your hottest 
porn thing to watch, your hottest sexual fantasy, and they're kind of embarrassed, I say, tell me. Then they tell me, then what I do is I, I, I strip the fantasy or the video they're recalling of its erotic elements and say, what's left? I and mean, inevitably, what's left are the psychological and emotional uh, underpinnings of their conditioning. What, what, in other words, what preceded the habit they now have. And that's very liberating. For, and I have every man do that. And each man is now, oh, here's, this is what I'm doing. This is it's an acting out of these old wounds. Here are the wounds. And every guy in the room's got the wounds. Even the guys that got are, are very rich or look like they got out together, they got stuff going too. And we're in it together. And there's a sense now, what can we do to work with this? And then there's a, often a, deep, a deepening of trust in me and each other. And um, I don't use any structure in the group, so things just emerge organically and naturally. And we go deeper and deeper. And by the end of it, we've created a community. It ends, of course, after five days. There's that sense of, of, of sharing the vulnerability that, that is at the root of shame and exposing the shame. And also sharing things that we've done that we don't feel so good about and, and having them heard, not left unchallenged, but really heard. Yeah. I've seen many men. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, you, you just mentioned the word challenge. And I think it's interesting because I've what I've seen is that a lot of times men feel very competitive against each other rather than with each other. And oftentimes they create these competitive relationships versus creating a relationship based on challenge. And is that something that you see yes. sort of out in everyday society with, with men? Yeah, and in the groups too. So when I I love I love working with the challenge in the group. So I use a lot of, a lot of my men's groups are quite physical, and it's not like it's not about pinning each other, hurting each other. It's about enjoying ex- expressing your full power as a man physically, and being met in it without there necessarily having to be a winner. So I, that can involve uh, expressing some feeling that's never been expressed in the midst of some physical piece of physical contact, pushing against another man, all done in a very safe way. And just a sense of, of place. There's no sense of I'm going to overpower this other guy. It's more like, let's do it together. But let's not just do lightweight contact improv. Let's just dive deeper. Let's let the primal warrior come out and make some sound in a safe setting, of course. And when men get to express what's really primal in them, um, really core-level warrior energy, it's not just screaming and stomping. It's much deeper. There's such liberation, and it actually increases their capacity for softness, tenderness, vulnerability. And when women have watched this in mixed groups, they inevitably end up cheering. They want more. They love it. It's not they, – they love the sense of the man being fully in, his, in himself, his power, his emotions. He's showing up in a full-spectrum way. And a lot of men are suffering because they only feel like they can show up in little ways like work competency or maybe in a certain area of sexuality – they can't show up fully. And once there's permission for that, I see most men, there's resistance to doing it. There's also this joy starts to start, the sobering joy of being able to be full-bloodedly alive and have it be celebrated by brothers, be they young or old. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because what you're talking about is being able to really find a deep level of fulfillment, at least what I hear is being able to find a deep level of fulfillment in the many different areas of our lives versus the sort of tendency that a lot of guys have in our in our modern or mainstream society to really focus like laser focusing on one specific area which usually is either you know making money or being very uh being very apt in, you know in yeah. bed and and having lots of sexual partners and uh, and what you're talking about is really being able to find 
fulfillment and maybe uh, success in or, you know, quote unquote, success in all of these different areas. What you're also pointing to is, is, is how many men will let their strengths camouflage their weaknesses. And the real growth is when we say, here's where I'm weak. Here's where I, maybe I'm emotionally illiterate or whatever. I'm going to go in that direction. And if it, with proper guidance, we do go there. But I, I, I love seeing men face what's weak in them, undeveloped, um, they, and cutting through the shame they have about that. And say, okay, here it is. You have a really hard time maybe crying or, or saying no with power or, or listening to your wife when she's really upset in a way that's very skillful. Once the shame is cut through again, those, those, we can face our weaknesses. And that's where the growth is. Rather than just, okay, I'm a multimillionaire, I'll make even more or I'm, I'm physically really powerful, I'll build even more muscle on. There's so much hiding behind that. And that's where shadow work becomes essential. And that's what I'm doing more and more of. And I'm, actually, my next book is going to be a complete book on shadow work uh, coming out in a year if it sounds true. It's so important to face our shadow. And our shadow being that which contains whatever we've disowned in ourselves, rejected in ourselves, said in so many words, that's not me. Often, for, here's an example. I see a guy in a men's group who's, treated his wife badly. He's, he's telling the group that and he's ashamed of it. And he's trying to be really good. And I, I'll have him face me. And I do, I work with eyes a lot in my work now, reading each eye. And I'll see in one of his eyes that he's just the good guy. He's trying really hard to just be the good husband and never look at other women anymore. And I, I, I say, I want to meet the other guy. So I look in the other eye and usually it's there somewhere and I find it. It's the him who doesn't give a crap about being a good husband, still wants to fuck around, still wants to do that. And it's just buried it real deep or can't be seen. But his wife, of course, can still feel it. That makes her uneasy, doesn't really trust him. So I'll have him bring that part out fully in the group, meet usually eye to eye with me. And when it's out in the open, then it's no longer this, this bizarre, strange place in him he has to keep hidden. It's just simply out in the open. Then we can look at the roots of it. You know, what it was before it became this dark habit when he was a little boy. And then he becomes more whole. He has a chance to now become intimate with this part of himself and integrate it. And the more intimate he is with this place in him that is inclined that way, the less likely it is he'll act it out. That's an example of, of shadow work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, shadow work has been around for a while. I think you, you have a book on it, um, knowing your shadow, right. From, from a few years back. That's, it's an audio program. Yeah. 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 And you know, you kind of, you dive into some of the parts of, of getting to know your shadow and, and being able to uncover these pieces. And, you know, just for, just for the people that are out there, if, you know, maybe they haven't heard that terminology before, how would you describe what the shadow is just in sort of a, a layman's terms and then and then how can people sort of start to get to know that side of them a little bit better well the sh- term shadow as i'm using it refers to um whatever we've turned away from in ourselves disowned rejected pushed away and for some people it could be their anger someone else could be their shame so there could be certain memories or it could be certain intentions we have and we're acting like we're a good person and underneath it all we have an ulterior motive it's it's whatever we're keeping in the dark we, whatever in us we want to keep out of sight. We don't want other people to see. And it's also something we can, we may project that quality we have in us onto others. It's very common. Like, I don't have that, that quality, but that person does. It's, it's, there's so much shadow in our culture, personally and collectively, and so little of it is looked at deeply. Because the real work, real shadow work is not just an intellectual pursuit of identifying this and 
looking at it in terms of archetypes. It's about diving down into our conditioning because at, at, at essence, our shadow is our unilluminated conditioning. It's the conditioning we have that we have not yet brought into the open and really taken a deep look at and worked with. That's the less glamorous version. That's, that's what shadow really is. And my work, I'm, I'm absolutely devoted to, to helping people tap into that stuff and work with it. Because hmm. that, that's, that's where the, the, there's so many gems in there. It's, it's dark, it's unpleasant. But it's the, think of the metaphor of the dragon in the cave. It's the same thing. Here's the dragon. We're a little frightened. We don't want to go near the dragon, but we sure want the treasure. The point is you can't get the treasure without facing the dragon. And the very encounter with the dragon makes us more ready to make wise use of the treasure. It, it seasons us. It deepens us. It's, the, it's another type of edge. And would you, would you say that, you know, people often talk about limiting beliefs and they often talk about the parts that are, that are holding them back from the things that they really want in life. And, and especially we hear a lot of talk about self-sabotage, you know, self-sabotage mechanisms. Would, would those components be a part of the shadow? It can be. It can be. But the whole thing about the, the beliefs that are holding us back, I don't buy that. I, I think what holds us back is what we do or don't do with the beliefs. We, I don't want to. I don't like when we blame the beliefs or blame this or blame that. If I didn't have this belief or that attitude, I'd be fine. No, if you change your relationship to it, it's just like whatever was neurotic in me when I was 30 years ago. A lot of that's still with me, but I've changed my relationship to it. So it's not. It doesn't dominate. Doesn't run the show. But it's still there. It's part of my shadows. Part of part of what makes makes me up. Part of my personality. We all have that. And I think when we're younger, we have the fantasy of getting rid of these things in some type of spiritual heroism but really what really matters is how intimate are we with all these different parts of ourself and the beliefs yeah and so you, you know one of the things that that i feel like probably ties into this is is our childhood and our relationships to our parents and one of the things that you've talked about extensively is being able to heal our relationship with our fathers or heal our father relationships and being able to father yourself I'm curious if you can unpack that a little bit for us and, and explain why that's beneficial for people to do. Well, it's partially one reason it's beneficial is that quite often we cannot heal that relationship, or, or we can it won't change very much at all. Maybe our father still doesn't listen to us, still doesn't admit things things that he did that were cruel or abusive, and we're getting older and we're still trying to get our father to come around. The next step really is to realize our father may never come around and to start to do that for ourselves and find it through male friends, male teachers. And in that, we are we, we let go of our attachment to our father finally showing up for us. And we can forgive him more authentically and we can actually access more compassion for him where he's stuck. We may not become close, but we're no longer carrying around a chip on our shoulder toward our father. We're, we've, we've taken the mature step of parenting ourselves. And that begins in part with getting more familiar with the little boy in us. And every man has a little boy. I mean, a baby boy, a little boy, it doesn't matter. And it's not just a an idea, it's a reality. It's that place in us that's vulnerable, pre-rational, um, imaginative, curious, thinks like a child, moves like a child, is a child. And a lot of men are kind of embarrassed to start doing the work of connecting with the little boy. But when I see men really tap into it, there's often a lot of grief because they're reliving how it was for them then. And then the next step, of course, is not just to relive it, but to also relate to it. So I have a sense, I'm going to give that little boy what my mom and dad didn't give me. And I'm going to do it not just now and then or at a workshop. I'm going to, I'm going to do it through the day. I'm going to 
be attuned to that place in myself, and I'm going to love him, love him, love him. I'm also going to protect him. Someone messes with him, I'll be in their face in a split second. The inner critic tries to nail that little boy. I'll get in between them just like that, tell the inner critic to back off, do some skillful work around that, and take good care of that little boy rather than waiting around through our years for our parents to show up in a deeper way. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. So I think the inner child work is absolutely essential, but it has to be a felt thing. It can't just be an intellectual exercise. And same with inner critic work. Inner critic is just as important to work with because uh, when you let the inner critic loose on the child in you, it's a real mess. The child cannot um, withstand the inner critic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as you're talking about this, recalling some of like the personal work that I had to do in order to heal this side and sort of the results that were on the other side. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in a divorced environment, like most, you know, I think like half of North Americans did who were born yeah, in the yeah. 80s. And um, I always had this, I lived with my mom and my stepdad, but I always had this expectation that my father should be more active in my life because I only saw him, you know, once a month, twice a month. And so growing up, I had this constant expectation that he should be the one, you know, building the relationship with me. He's the father, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that carried into my adult life and got in the way of me building relationships with other men in my life because I had this, you know, this perception that they were the ones that needed to continue to build the relationship with me. And so I never put any effort into my male relationships. And once I realized that, that, you know, this, this hurt little boy was still running the show, having this you know, expectation from when I was like six, yeah. it, everything started to shift. And I started to be the one that put effort into my relationships, uh-huh. you know, with my father and with the other men in my life. And, and so it's really interesting to see the, the outcomes that can happen when we do start to see, see what you did, Connor, you, you, you refused with the little boy for a long time, even though you're using adult language. And then you've started to awaken to that. And you started to relate to him. And then other men are saying, oh, my God, there's the other men I can relate to who are more mature than my father, more present with me. And it also allows me to heal some things with my father. But it began with you starting to relate to the boy. You becoming aware that he even existed. For many men, there's not even an awareness that there's a boy in them. There's a sense of embarrassment even in considering that. And yet, once we do it, wow. And that boy can go, it can go right back to birth. You know, the emotional memory is uh, where it goes right back to birth in the last trimester. That there's a place in us that, re, that where all of that, those old memories are stored and they're very much alive. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And do you feel like any of this plays a factor in in our ability to commit in relationship dynamics? Because I hear a lot of, you know, there's there's sort of a stigma and a stereotype sometimes and, and around men and commitment and being able to commit to especially intimate relationships. I hear especially a lot of women sometimes will say, you know, men struggle to commit and and even men identify, oh, you know, I, I really struggle to commit you know, because it has a loss of freedom. How does how does that fit into all of this? And, and how do we sort of move through that? I think we have to reexamine what we think commitment means to us. I think real I think true commitment is not something you actually can you can choose to do. It just happens organically. Like when I was with my, my wife, when we first met, we never talked about commitment. It just started to, it started to evolve organically. And after a while, it just felt completely off to not take it to the next steps, you know, towards um, living together, marriage. But there was no sense of, of having to say, I, I'm committed to. It was already there. I think the trouble is when people try and make commitments or 
they're they're divided. And part of them is saying, yes, I'll do it. Another part that's in the shadows is not into it, maybe even sabotaging it. They're partially there. I know many women will be with men who are partially into being with them, and they'll work like crazy trying to get that man to want more, to read the books, take the courses, and of course they'll resist. And they, they've what they've done, the women, and I'm generalizing a lot, they've in a way fallen in love with a man's potential. And they're trying to hold him to that. And of course, then there's a lot of shaming happens. I think the really deep commitment is, is to ourselves. And it's not to say, shall I commit, shall I not? It's more like, go to your core. I often teach people this, shift from surface to depth, from depth to a deeper depth. Go to a place in yourself where you're not divided. Make your decisions from there. And, and that when you're in that deep place, the commitment, if we're speaking of commitment, is to be true to that depth, to be aligned with that depth, and not, and not to make any New Year's resolutions type of commitments. It's a very tricky territory, and some women can get very desperate for that. And I would say to them, take, take a word, explore your desperation for that, and be, explore your concern with your trying to get him to shift. I see healthy couples, neither one is trying to get the other one to, to shift or, or grow. They're both on the same team. They're growing together. It's as if they're both on the sitting side by side, gazing with mutual compassion upon the weaknesses and shadow of each other. It's a, it's a, it's a co-creative journey of deep, deep sacred mutuality. It doesn't require some notion of commitment to hold it together. They're already in the deep end and they're, they're there. They're there for the long haul. And just to kind of shift gears a little bit, because it, it kind of came up before and, and we glossed past it, which is this idea of the impact of, you know, men seeking porn or having porn addictions and, and, and how that shows up. So just can you unpack for us in, in your perspective, why so many men turn to pornography? Let's just start there. Why, why do so many men turn to pornography? Because they're in pain and, and they learned Early on, one of the quickest ways to have relief from pain was, as a teenager, was masturbation. Maybe with fantasy, maybe without, with porn or without. They get a little older and they realize they can increase the charge with porn. They guess they get pulled to certain types. And when I'm working with a guy who's really into porn, what we do is we, we, we look at, first of all, what he's into and how that ties into his early life. Then the first bit of homework is when you feel that urge to use, Ask yourself, what am I feeling besides lust and craving and desperation? What am I feeling emotionally? How old do I feel in that? So we identify who we, his age before he started to use it, the sense of feel, the feelings he has. And usually men will report they feel anxious, maybe angry sometimes, lonely, troubled. And this is a quick, a quick release. So my work with men is not to say, oh, sad, you shouldn't, shouldn't do it. It's more like to say, let's outgrow it. And here's how to outgrow it. And you have to start with that. You have to you have to turn toward the pain that drove you into porn in the first place. We're back to square one. Turn toward the pain. This in this case is emotional pain. And spend some time. Sit with that little guy you once were for five minutes. Tune into him before you go and jack off. Just tune into him. Stay with him. Then there's other steps that can be taken, but that first step is the big one to turn toward the emotional pain you were in when you first discovered. The relief of ejaculation, and after that, use of pornography. And I find I find I find men really receptive to this. It's like it's a relief, like it's something they can do. Yeah, I mean, there's there seems to be a lot of 
shaming, especially not just shame, but shaming around pornography. And I feel like a lot of the times when the conversation comes up with guys, that's how it's really approached is that there's, there's a bit of a shaming, like you shouldn't be doing that or that those, those types of narratives. And I feel like it, it leaves men not even open to the conversation because they already feel like they're in the wrong. And so then they don't want to talk about it, but exactly. Yeah. And I really like the perspective that you're bringing up because you're saying, you know, be willing, like, what if you outgrew it? Then what's on the other side of that? Yeah, well, like, it's an adventure. It's an adventure. Here it is. I've done this. I've got pretty good at it. And it's not, it's not serving me now. How about outgrowing it? How about, it's like, take up a new form of exercise or a new type of meditative practice. Outgrow it. And when you outgrow it, the re- one reward, of course, is you become far more capable of real intimacy with a woman. Or another man. You just you become mm-hmm. capable of that because a pornographic mindset is no longer running you. You no longer need to use fantasy in order to have quote unquote good sex. The real reality of the other person you're with is enough of an aphrodisiac. And the connection with them becomes more central to you than than the, than the ejaculatory rush you can get from using porn. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really powerful. And in terms of you know, just for the listeners that are out there that that might be considering something like this, how would you recommend that they go about that? Because for me, you know, when I decided that pornography was no longer, and I I love your lens again, you know, when I, I hadn't thought about it this way, but when I wanted to outgrow it, it started with me just taking 30 days away and just saying, I'm not going to look at it, use it at all. And that was my process. But I'm curious is if you recommend how guys can go about this process, because I found it very challenging. And I know a lot of men find it really, really challenging to break away from the use of pornography. Well, for, first thing is don't, don't shame yourself for it, but also it does not mean condone it. Okay, that means I can just go ahead freely because you're doing some damage, especially if you've got a partner and she's really upset about it. I think the first step is, is again, turning toward the pain that underlies it. And um, I have a really big section and to be a man on it. And I think it's also very, very helpful to have a skilled guide. Go to a therapist you trust a male therapist and work on this, not just intellectually work on it. And if you do all the steps I've listed, there's a number of them and stick with it. Something can happen. And there's also the one's will, like you had the will to say no for the, you took a, a chunk of time. Some men's we, uh, will is weaker, but the, there, is, there are practices and they, it's the same practices you do for your deep work anyways, just to connect with the inner child. You get more in touch with your conditioning, early abuse. You see that. I mean, the men with the heaviest porn habits I've seen usually have had pretty abusive times as boys. And this, this became a major solution to their pain. They're not about to just give it up like that. So you have, they have to be worked with very skillfully. And no shame if, they, if, if the habit doesn't disappear overnight. It's more like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a marathon than a sprint. But once you apply yourself, magic can happen. Like for you, you did enough. You haven't gone back, I assume. No, I haven't. Are you tempted? Yeah, I mean, every once in a while. What I found was that for me, it was those high stress times in my life. And and it was it was literally it was one of those means of, you know, I I was never into drugs. Um, I went through a period in my early 20s where where I drank quite a bit. But for me, you know, porn and, and those side of the things that and sex especially was a means of of release. It was a means of, of stress relief. But see, here's the thing. If, say, the thing is, let's say you're still tempted here and there. You can then do the practice of, okay, what, what's, what am I feeling now? 
what's Connor feeling right now emotionally? And how old do I feel right now? What, what, what's coming up for me as I do this? Then there's no shame around, okay, it comes up again. Maybe you're, and you can even tell your partner, this is coming up for me. I don't want to act on it. But I want you to know this is there for me. And odds are you're probably not feeling that happy when it happens. You're, there's probably more stress, more some anxiety. And then you, it's, you, it doesn't become like something you, I, you want to say to yourself, I never will have this again. It's more like, ah, here it is again. Big surprise. Um, yeah, I'm feeling kind of lonely now. I feel a little, little agitated. I feel a little bothered with my partner right now. Something. And you start to identify it. And of course you would want to act out. And of course you also are mature enough to know to see through it. Then you don't treat the habit as something to beat yourself up for. So it's, it's still in you probably a little bit here and there, little flickers. It's like our inner critic. No one gets rid of their inner critic. It's still there. Mine feels like a mosquito in the back corners of my psyche most of the time, but it's there. It's there. And so it's really the process of, of the awareness. Is It sounds like the awareness is really the first step of being able to move through a lot of these components to just acknowledge from a space of non-shaming. Compassionate awareness, yeah. The compassion is so crucial. Compassionate awareness and choosing to become intimate with the habit like here it is, a habit you've had, a lot of men have had, and choosing intimacy with it. You want to know what inside, how did this arise in me? Where did it take me? Why did this type of porn pull up me more than that type? I like to examine the, the details with men rather than saying, because it's just porn, porn. I want to know the details because I can connect it more to them personally. And you know what? At the heart of porn is, is, a, is eroticizing of our old wounds. And women have just as much of that going as men. They don't use porn the same way or don't use it, but eroticizing our wounds is a, is a practice that it goes. Be, it's not specific to one gender. That means taking the charge we have in the, with an early situation in life, the excitation, the negative excitation, and sexualizing it. So then suddenly we're acting it out. And I have a whole bunch on that in the book too, on what it means to eroticize our wounds. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we could have we could go in depth on this for a long time. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This, this could be the whole podcast. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, just just before we have to wrap it up, just because we're we're nearing the end here, I wanted to have a brief discussion with you about about purpose and about finding meaning in life. Because for a lot of men, what what I see as one of the biggest common threads of of men who are struggling is this loss of connection with a sense of purpose in their life. And yes. I was hoping that you could you could dive into this a little bit with me and and sort of share your insights on what you've seen, you know, how, why men struggle to connect with purpose even if they might have a sense of it in their life and and how they can sort of move towards that slowly. I, I see most men struggling with purpose because they haven't gone to their core. Or, and they maybe have done a few groups, workshops that have taught about men having purpose. And they try and they try and find it, but they're not coming from a deep enough place in themselves. So when I find I'm working with someone who's really keen on finding their purpose, male or female, what the work I do is to take them right down to their core. And that means facing the pain, working with the wounds, open up spiritually a little more, just getting in touch with our core of being. Once we're sitting in that place, I call it our true seat. Then purpose becomes an obvious thing. Sometimes our purpose is just to wander some more, to be in limbo more, or is to go more wholeheartedly into a type of work we've dreamt about doing. But if we're not in our core, we'll, we'll go back and forth around purpose. We won't, we won't 
it won't be satisfying. We want some. We want work that comes right from our our core, our soul. And when that happens, and we love our work, it's such a beautiful thing. That's what I've had for decades. I love my work. It's it's in my blood, and um, I want to do it till I till I'm you know ninety years old if I can or older. So I think purpose is, has to be taken out of the conceptual realm and, and taken down to where we feel it intuitively at our core of being. Like, and when someone's in that place, I can ask them questions and start to identify their purpose more, starting with just more general considerations, visionary stuff. But this is not, if they're not in that deep place, there's no point discussing it. Exploring it. So, I mean, it's it's interesting because what I hear you saying is that a lot of men are looking for purpose in in surface level areas and not getting to sort of the root. They're looking out on the branches of the tree rather than the actual base of the tree. They're still divided internally too much. They don't know themselves enough. They're not aware of the of, of the inner workings, the layers of them, their multidimensional nature. That's where the work becomes. I, I no longer consider my work as, as as to be psychotherapeutic. I can see I call it psycho spiritual. I, the spiritual comes into almost everything I do, but it's mixed in with the psychological and the somatic and the emotional. So it's like one thing. And in that, I get to work with men's identity, psychological issues, emotional literacy work, uh, somatic things being more embodied. When a man steps into his core uh, in a full spectrum way, things like purpose are there. They may not have a clear cut answer right away, but they're on the path toward it. And often that means having the courage to say no to things they've been doing for a long time. That's part of the difficulty, too. It's like if you want a true partner and you're putting your energy into being with partners that aren't really that good for you because you have a certain condition pull to them, you're not available to the true partner. And same applies to work. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really great perspective, and I love the analogy. Um, so, Robert, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. We're going to have to uh, going to have to wrap it up here. But if people want to learn more about you and your work uh, and the books that you've written, where can they find you? RobertMasters.com. Wonderful, and we'll have a we'll have a link of that on the website. And for all the listeners out there in Mantox land, if you uh, want to learn more about Mantox, any of the blog posts that we have, the podcast interviews, or the live videos that we have from our events all over North America, please go to www.mantox.com for more info on that. And until next week, join us for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring man. Mm-hmm.